House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. You're back in the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren, the guy at the controls, and uh, we've, we've got a real crowded room, but everybody is socially distanced and wearing a mask. <laughs> Especially, especially Eric, the doctor, Eric. Um, how are you, you doing, doing, Eric? Yeah, so what's what's going on in your neck of the woods? Oh, I'm excited. I'm particularly excited today because you graced me with allowing a dear friend of mine, and as the guest, also a terrific filmmaker. So this is a special edition of House of Mystery. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know yeah. you knew Oliver Stone. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, there's so much confusion. Yeah. Don't get me started on Oliver Stone. I'll, yeah, I can talk I for like four hours without oh. stopping. Uh, yeah. I, I know his son, you know, Sean. Oh, do you, how do you friends. know Sean? Oh, he's, he's sort of into conspiracy stuff, isn't he? Yeah, he's a nutball. Oh, okay. I know <laughs> he know. was, um, what did he do? He converted to Muslim at one point? or Well, now he he's, real, into, uh, he's into the earth. He's been going out and he's, he goes out with a pair of underwear and, and a sweater and he goes sits <laughs> in, the, in the field for like about two months at a time. Well, I mean, he's Oliver Stone's son. I mean, that's, that's how he was reared. Yeah, but you know, yeah. I, I like him. We we get along great, and we are. I have his number. I should give it out and have people call him. But, <laughs> yeah, no, but the thing is, he's he just goes. He goes off on these tangents. He gets really into these um, things, just like his dad, you know. And, oh yeah, 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 yeah. And he's like lit. Yeah, he seems cool. I mean, I know he's also tried to get different things going, like movies and being an actor. And he's like his career has never really gotten momentum. He's and yeah. he's sort of in his dad's shadow. Yeah, he's. It's got to be hard. But, yeah, yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah, and 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 sitting, we got a new uh, co-host that's been sitting in lately. His name is David North Martino, or we're going to call him Whiskey Man. <laughs> whiskey Man. <laughs> He's a whiskey aficionado, you know. Yes. <laughs> of course. I mean, well, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. We need. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think now is really the time for inside jokes where it makes uh, absolutely no sense. Yeah. yeah. No, but, he really. What, is. Do you, what do you know about whiskey, David? Uh. uh well, I, uh, I drank a lot of it. <laughs> oh, good. Okay, I'll oh, fair enough, fair enough. Oh, yeah, okay. no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I drink scotch, I drink uh, Canadian whiskey, uh, bourbon, rye. Oh, nice. Uh, so it was the Canadian whiskey that sold out. <laughs> yeah. That was what made it. Yeah, yeah it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. his writing. God. Yeah, yeah no. <laughs> no. I usually... <laughs> oh, you like Canadian whiskey? Yeah. yeah. No, no, he's a good writer. I... He's a good writer. Oh, well, thanks. Oh, sure, I have no doubt. <laughs> yeah. Now... Uh, so we've got um, a guest you picked today, and uh, it sounds fascinating. I uh, the the I was checking out her work and uh, some of the websites, and and I know um, the web series Dyke Central is kind of the the most popular item, but it looks like there's a lot of work behind her. So um, yeah, well, uh, you know, so thank you for joining us. We've got uh, Florencia Manaville. Thank you for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh. You're welcome. I, I'm glad you didn't leave. <laughs> <laughs> I was, it was only a few minutes, too. I was laughing quietly. Uh, Eric brings up Oliver Stone pretty much every single conversation he can, so I thought it was a hilarious The, the biggest fan. Oh, you see, and I can't stand him. Um, oh, yeah. Are you talking about the guy or the work or both? Both. Oh, I mean, man. I don't know him that well. I've met him, but I don't yeah. know him that well. Oh, he and seems I, like sort of, oh, I've got to be careful with the amount of people listening, but he, he seems like he, he can be a difficult character. No, and it's not even that. It's just I, I really don't like a lot of his filmmaking because we see this is what we'll talk about. Florenza, you can jump in on this. What do you think of someone like Oliver Stone? And I don't mean personally, and I don't mean politically or any of that sort of stuff. But when you look at his filmmaking itself, and as you as a filmmaker, is he someone that you respect, or it's not the right word, but is he someone that you look for, uh, for any sort of an influence on, on how you film? Wow. Okay. I think you're really putting my friendship with Eric on the line. Asking yeah, that's okay. Question. No, no, no. no. Uh, I I'm mean... holding back a, a gushing dam. <laughs> my wife hates Oliver Stone, so just... Yeah. He's very... He's difficult to love. Go ahead. Uh, I, I am not going to touch that because I really... The, the Oliver Stone expert in the in the virtual room is Eric. Um, <laughs> but I do think that I have a very different style and um, 
aesthetic uh, pace that I'm drawn to. Uh, and this is something that Eric and I talk about often. Um, I am more of the sort of uh, Ang Lee, Wong Kar Wai um, <clears throat> pace. Um, I, I, I really am drawn to... Uh, I, mean, I just watched Nomadland um, a couple nights ago. I'm really drawn to um, films that allow you to sit with the sort of the texture and, and more uh, like uh, gray areas and like nuances of um, humanity, you know, and, and not necessarily the, the like super high highs and low lows, but more of the, just all of the, you know, the, the gamut of, of color and and by I mean when what I mean by sit with I mean like um, a slow also like a slower pace where you're just really allowed to take in um, take in the images take in the like really feel what's happening and not necessarily be in in a very intense roller coaster kind of thing which I think is uh, more of the Oliver Stone. Uh, and mm -hmm. Eric preferred type of of thing. Well, yeah, yeah that's, I, I, that's one ahead. aspect of it. Like when you look at the action and the roller coaster, isn't that that's just one aspect? But I mean, as the filmmaker itself, the problem I have with something like watching Oliver Stone, if, if it, okay, so take away the story. Let's say we're not going to talk about whether he's got a good story or not. Or he's telling the truth because he tries to do a lot, like JFK and all that stuff. But um, the actual filmmaking itself, for me, Oliver Stone seems really boring. There's, there's, there's no, um, he doesn't involve the set. He doesn't involve enough of the surrounding world. It doesn't, it doesn't hold me. If, if the story isn't working, I, I can fall asleep. It sounds like you're saying he doesn't let it breathe. Is that what you're saying? Like it's too frantic, like he's shooting eyeballs and pairs of glasses and like yeah, there, there's yeah. there's not a lot of like 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 just like Ferenczi said, there's not a lot of texture or color. I understand that being mm, into music. I don't get it. Like like I said, take away if you're not following the direct story. So let's say that you know he's telling a story, and you look at the filmmaking itself. If you look at the pictures, if you took the volume down and looked at the picture, I I, I don't I don't get a whole lot of um, access. Yeah, I don't I don't find yeah. it. It's, I don't know. If, do you do you understand what I mean, Florencia? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Uh, I, I. Well, it's not I like on all of them. Yeah, I know. We <laughs> really, really went there. Um, I I think the word access actually, Eric, is a good one for me at least. I think that it is not. Um, I think his work is not an easy emotional access for me. Um, I think that's true. I think it's a bit of an acquired taste. <clears throat> um, I wanted to say about Florencia, when, uh, so we met each other at Emerson College in the late 90s. We went to, uh, I was studying writing literature and publishing, uh, publishing, and she was a film student. And something about the visual aspect of her movies I wanted to talk about today is, uh, it's interesting when you think about, quote unquote, visual filmmakers, you usually think about how they set the frame and how they move the camera. Um, and, and Florencia with film grammar speaks in that way as well. You know, there's careful composition and movement and blocking and so forth. But what I always found uh, fascinating about her movies is what's in the frame, whether it's um, the look of a face or the um, shape of a body or, um, like she said, the texture or the color is very, very intentional, um, which I love. So it's visual in the sense that the subject uh, populates the visual mindset, which does bring to mind people like Ang Lee. So is that, is that accurate, Florencia, the way I just described your aesthetic to an extent that it's uh, mindful in terms of what you're putting in front of people? Yeah, I think so. Um, <clears throat> absolutely. I mean, I think that um, I'm just an emotionally driven person. And, and so I think like the face is definitely a priority for me. Um, and all of the elements that are really focused on evoking emotion over style or, you know, 
whatever else. Um, and you're also something that also struck me in film school is that uh, something that happened, Al, when we when I went to film school, I was a huge film geek growing up, as many film students are, and I'm into Scorsese and Oliver Stone. Not so much at that point; that actually got acquired a little bit later in my life. But uh, um, Tarantino, and you know, uh, Tarantino is a strange case because his movies are personal, but he's a huge pop culture geek, so that's what he's expressing. But I was really interested in personal filmmakers. I mean, that's why I wanted to go. I studied writing, but I was always making films, and I'm very much a filmmaker. And I went to film school, and I was kind of disappointed by, um, and not to be too snobby, but some of the other film students' like favorite movies, like I, I expected, like not like it was going to be real rarefied if we talk about the classics, but when people told me like Terminator 2 was their favorite movie of all time, I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's an amazing action movie. But uh, I was really surprised. I was like, wow, this is the generation of film students. And uh, what struck me about Florencia's work, and it was really... I can't even emphasize how unique it was among the pool of students and then later as we all moved into doing it in a more professional or just adult capacity, um, just how personal it is. And that's why I've always liked it and liked reading her scripts before she's in production and um, seeing the work. And I really was excited to talk about the fluency and the personal dimension of your movies and what you have to say about you know, what types of people and what type of world you're generally going into. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, thank you, by the way. That's really sweet. Um, <laughs> um, oh, for heaven's sake. No, yeah, of course. No. <laughs> but, yeah, um, yeah, I, I, it is interesting. I remember being in college, and I, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, everybody kind of makes films for different reasons. Uh, and for me, it is absolutely just a form of self-expression and, and processing uh, my life and my experiences, um, whereas, and, and, and I'm also interested in watching personal films. I think I, I like films that really mean something personally. So Terminator 2, definitely not, uh, in that realm. Um, yeah. What's yeah. So, would you define your films? I don't. I don't mean to label or pigeonhole too aggressively, but are, are, is it fair to say that your your films and your TV show is, is queer cinema? Is that a uh, applicable label? Oh yeah, yeah, that's an applicable label. Absolutely. Because yeah. one of the most striking images from Dyke Central, and I, it's been a, a couple years since I watched it, but um, there is, I, I believe, a trans individual. Um, who is female appearing but has a beard, and that exemplifies what I was trying to describe about your visual sensibility because it's unforgettable. I mean, it's iconic, and it's the sort of image like most pop media that's feeding your eyeball is not going to feed you. And I felt, you know, it's just one of many examples in your series um, and across your features and, and shorts and so forth that's bold. So I wanted you to talk about um, representation and uh, capturing your own, your, uh, your uh, own community uh, through this, these mediums. Yeah. Um, actually, she is just a woman, like a cis woman who okay. has a beard. Who has um, a beard. Okay. Yeah, and um, it's interesting. I, I mean, yeah, in, in response to the, to the question at large, I, I mean, I am just very bored by uh, Hollywood cookie cutter aesthetic in general, uh, let alone that politically and personally, the whole like skinny, white, uh, airbrushed model looking representation of women is something that I want to like very intentionally um, counteract and, and battle with. Mm -hmm with what I put on the screen because it's extremely toxic and dangerous that, you know, women and girls don't have uh, a range of people to, to look at on the screen who they might see themselves reflected in and they might, you know, see as, you know, beautiful and heroes or flawed, but whatever. Um, so, so th that is a, an element that I come with from my childhood and uh, not, not seeing anybody with my like body type because uh, I'm not a skinny person um, reflected on the screen and, and just knowing, you know, just how pervasively problematic that is 
um, so, so that's one element. And then um, broadening that onto, um, you know, I, mean, the, I, I always give this an example, but it's, it's very true, you know, in the queer community, we, in the, not, not male gay, but in the, you know, assigned female at birth uh, side of the spectrum, uh, we only had the L word. And the L word at the time, right, back when I started creating Deck Central, the L word is very skinny, white, mm, yeah, uh, yeah. covered in makeup, very femme, you know. Um, and that, uh, I didn't, I, my person, my queer community in the Bay Area, it was absolutely not seeing itself reflected in that one only show that was like the only thing available. Um, so I really felt just, I, like I wanted to, to represent. And also it's such a beautiful community. I mean, and there is such diversity exactly like this you know, like woman doesn't look like one thing or if even femme woman doesn't look like one thing. This character mm -hmm. that you're talking about was a femme woman who happened to have a beard, not a beard naturally. Um, and uh, I think, I think actually a lot of women have beards, but they, but, you know, it's completely unacceptable in society, especially in straight society to, to have a beard if you're a feminine woman. Um, so, you know, that they have to get rid of it. So um, this person who in her life had it and performed it, and it's, of course, acceptable in the queer community or more acceptable in the queer community. So she's able to have that, that freedom to express uh, or just to naturally be how she was born, you know. Um, that's I'm sorry, the, I, missed the, I missed the step. I'm sorry to interrupt. Did you say the period was natural or what? It was natural. She grew yeah. it. Yeah. Right? Okay, yeah, yeah, lot, okay, yeah. It's sort of like an over, overlooked possibility for women. Exactly. And, and actually, and that's the, the thing. I mean, I, we, we don't even know that actually a lot of women grow, can grow like goatees or, or whatnot. And because they absolutely remove it, because otherwise, you know, they'll be, they'll be mocked and um, yeah. just not fully accepted in society. But in queer community, there is just more latitude for people to express themselves, their gender, their identity, um, as they naturally naturally are. So that's the beautiful, beautiful thing about the queer community, at least where I live, you know, in the Bay Area. Because um, I think in L.A. it is much more because of its proximity to Hollywood. Actually, I mean, I've, after after all this, like, I did go to L.A. and being in the in the LGBTQ community there, I'm like, oh, actually, these people do kind of look like the L word people, you know, it's not, yeah, it's not yeah. that the L word doesn't represent, you know, it is still Hollywood. Uh, and that's why I, I, Dyke Central is set in the Bay Area and, and Oakland is such a part of the show because yeah. uh, it's a very special thing that we have here that, um, that isn't, that, that level of like, freedom to tr and, and acceptance to truly like let people be quote unquote weird which is you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. what is weird but um but that's not just a female like a, a woman lesbian part um because look at queer as folk and and some of the others everybody on there was pretty and skinny and mm -hmm. had perfect hair and teeth and everything right like there was they, they mm -hmm. do that to us too Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I, and I think that's a, a lot of what San Francisco Bay Area is on the forefront of is breaking that mold, like even, um, you know, for obviously, uh, I, I know less about the, the gay male side of it, but, you know, the same with like bears and um, just embracing different body types and celebrating different body types and uh, expressions of, of, of gender all across the spectrum. I think that in the Bay Area, it's something that is at the, at the forefront. And, and I've seen that even in, you know, the, I'm, basically I have a, uh, a proximity to the queer film festivals. My work has screened at many queer film festivals in, you know, in the country and, and outside of it. And, um, 
the queer film festivals of each place really kind of represent or or reflect uh, just this this different this difference in in the places and the the Bay Area uh, one Frameline, which is the longest running one. Uh, really has work that like maybe wouldn't be shown in Outfest in Lay or or in other places because the Bay Area is sort of at the forefront of breaking those barriers of like um, of what is acceptable and what how far we can expand in our expression. It seems like uh, from what I pick up online, like on Amazon, where Dyke Central is still streaming on Prime, right? It's still there. I know it's platformed mm-hmm. elsewhere too. Yeah. Um, it seems like uh, Oakland is grateful. Like it, it, you really caught the um, the intonation and and temperature and texture, as you said, of the area, because it seems like people there's a very common reaction across whether it's Amazon reviews or social media posts or whatnot about Dyke Central. It's like Oh, she got it. It's here. Like, it's here. We're finally, there's finally a mirror being held up to us. Is that, is that something you've seen in the reaction? Uh, Yeah, people have been really, um, really effusive in, in their response, which has been, was really nice. I will say it does feel to me now a little dated. Uh, we shot okay. the pilot like 10 years ago. So there are things that are a big part of the Bay Area that are not in the show, like the the, the housing crisis. You know, now mm-hmm. I think there's parts when I watch that pilot and then they're like, oh, yeah, there's a room for $500. <laughs> and we're all like, wow, that is really not the case because now it's finding housing is very difficult. You know, there, there's a whole element that I actually did want to, get into if I ever did a season two and never got to. Um, so in a way, it did capture a moment in time as well. Um, oh, that's good, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you, um, with the Hollywood thing, and I know you, you tie this back to your more formative years in terms of body type and what you want to represent, did you ever have any interest or working in or succeeding in Hollywood, or was that always something that, was, that you had more of an antipathy toward? Antipathy. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. So, so you never, it was never like you had stars in your eyes, like you were dazzled, like, oh, I'm going to make it, I'm going to be famous. That was never the motive. It was always just the, the cinema and using that medium to express yourself. Yeah, and I think also, in, you know, we're talking about favorite movies when we were in college in those, in those formative years. Like, I think my favorite movies just were not Hollywood movies to begin mm-hmm. with. Um, and also... I do remember, like, in college being in very, you know, very toxic masculine, like, bro-y sets and having an understanding that, oh, that's what, you know, the quote-unquote industry is, is just having to tolerate uh, that. And I just don't have that tolerance or patience for, you know. Yeah, and I would say that's still the norm. I mean, that's kind of like mm-hmm. when you talk about, like, set dogs or, or set kids, like there's people that live on sets. It's predominantly male, I would say, still. I mean, isn't that, isn't that sort of the thing? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, and, and it, that's one element. And then the other aspect is I just have zero interest in ever living in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, God bless you. Yeah, it wasn't, yeah I was, I was uh, waiting to get out for a long time while I was there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah and... and <laughs> We're on Los Angeles radio, just so you know. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, so, yeah, I mean, yeah. when you're talking about the best city in the world. Yeah. But it, but no, it, go ahead, go ahead. The third aspect of it is that I also remember there was a point I was watching, you know, watching movies and being like, wow, a lot of these movies are filmmakers talking about filmmaking. And it's like, and even when I went to L.A. and would visit some of my friends who work in the industry, all they talk about is filmmaking and they talk to filmmakers and I was I just had this clear sense that I don't I, I want to be in the world and make movies about the the world like mm-hmm. real life and then you know what I mean and not just like be navel gazing as as a filmmaker without any like connection to what like real world is yeah I think uh, the peak of that syndrome for me was entourage like, it's mm. so, like, L.A. up its own ass. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, and I, the thing about L.A. is I had, you know, I was there for 14 years out, and I had highs and lows. It was a huge adventure. I was in the business. But the thing I noticed when I left and came up to the Bay Area 
was I had felt so much pressure the whole time I was there. Like, you're, I felt a sense of pressure to be relevant, to be succeeding, to have a scripting option, to be, you know, hired on commission to write something. And it's just that sort of atmosphere, because it's such an industry town, like Florencia is saying, like, it's just, it infuses and saturates everything. And I, like, find it, when I'm making films up here, I actually find it easier to think, because I'm not, mm-hmm. like, it's not cross-indexed with what any other group of people is up to. And, and um, another thing I got to say is on my first, and this was a, a, a pivotal moment in terms of me and Florencia becoming closer, whether she knows it or not, is on my first feature, my crew was entirely women, and that wasn't by design, it was sort of by happenstance. It's like, ooh, this person's available, that person's available. And before I knew it, the crew was, like, 85% women. And I, I realized how uh, relaxed and non-charged and uh, grounded it felt, stable, or at least at least for me. And that was a big thing. And I thought of Florencia instantly. I was like, aha, I'm starting to understand. Uh, not, to, not to drag men and not to make some broad, broad-based statement, but uh, there is something to be said for sort of shuffling the deck and changing the atmosphere of how a movie is actually made because there's, there seems to be, in so many cases, like one set standardized approach. Yeah. I would yeah. say that's probably a big uphill battle for you then, um, not only being a woman filmmaker, but filming something that uh, is accepted in, in, in the major media, so to, so to speak. Yeah, um, I would say that's not really a primary concern for me. Um, I have this sense of just kind of like doing in a way I guess I operate a little bit more as a artist between you know quote unquote than as a you know filmmaker um in the sense of I'm just doing the things that are interesting to me you know that that I am really juiced about and wanting to explore because I I think there's this kind of filmmaker track where you can you can get into the mindset of like, what am I supposed to be doing? What is uh, wanted of me? And, and actually that changes so quickly. Um, and, and it can be very confusing. I remember when I first started doing like central, it was, there was, there were a lot of like, you should do this. You should do that. You should do that. And uh, first off, like nobody really knows what you should do because um the the filmmaking landscape especially i mean with with the advent of digital filmmaking and streaming uh and you know the the digital way of like watching films consuming content whatnot um things are just constantly changing so there's actually no nobody actually knows how things should be done so there's that um and I think there, there are, there, there, it's very noisy out there in terms of like messages for filmmakers or filmmakers who want to grow or yeah, make it into the mainstream or this and that. You should do this. You should do that. You should do that. Um, for me, obviously, I'm not somebody who like uh, has a comfortable relationship with authority <laughs> and like. <laughs> Uh, you know, oh, somebody tells me I should do this. Let me do this. Uh, that's not really how I operate. I'm very much like, you know, singing to my own tune or whatever the phrase is. Um, but, but also, I think that, um, yeah, I, I think it makes sense for me internally, psychologically, emotionally, creatively to just to just work on the things that I want to make. And then, oh, if at some point something sort of fits into what some distributor or some higher power in the film world is looking for, then great. I can, um, I can make whatever I'm working on, you know, serve that, but, uh, but not to just to, to take, that as the starting point you know um oh what is wanted from me let me let me do that I just don't really I just I just don't really create that way and I going back to um to for me this being really first and foremost of a a form of self-expression like just the language that my you know muse speaks in um 
or whatnot. That said, you know, I am currently really excited about developing a project that definitely needs uh, structural support, you know, from, from the film higher powers, whatever those might be. So it is an interesting process to do the thing that I innately want to do and then, okay, have to create the materials that are needed to bridge the communication between where I am and where that world is, if that makes any sense. Part of the subtext of everything you just said uh, is that you've never, in addition to not being driven toward the Hollywood dream, you're not motivated by money. Like, this is not, you're not uh, and that makes you unique among, I think, all the filmmakers I know. Um, you're not, I'm, get, I'm hearing, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that you're not, it's not like, okay, eventually I can make a living, that's the hope I'm pinning my life to, uh, from doing this, it's completely more, like you said, on the art side of things. Right. I feel like we're about to have the, the Francis Ford Coppola conversation, Eric. <laughs> oh, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By, by all means. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah uh, absolutely. Agreed. And, and connected to everything else we talked about, part of me being like, hey, I want to live in the real world is, was, yeah, I want to make a living. I, and, and I don't want to have to be in toxic environments uh, unless I don't want to be on set unless it's my own movies or, or yeah. isolated movies that I choose um, because I want to support this film being made as opposed to like just having to work on set and put up with it. So because of that, I have, I make my money, you know, in a different way. I'm a translator and interpreter. Um, so, uh, and I'm also a parent, you know, and I wouldn't really be able to parent the way that I, that I want to parent if I were making films for a living. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, I am not money motivated, motivated. That's correct. And therefore I do get to do whatever I want with my, with yeah. my filmmaking. Um, and the, but I, I feel like we should share with the others, Eric, the Francis Ford Coppola thing, which is, yeah, yeah. uh, there was this article and now I don't think it, I don't know if I remember who sent it to whom, whether it was me to Eric or Eric to me. Yeah. But, I think it originated with you. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Because this is a topic that, that comes up a lot. Right. And, and there was this, yeah. like, I think Eric, you, I think you were living in LA at the time and it, it is mm -hmm. this pressure we're feeling like. This this con this concept of like, if you are not making money off of your creative uh, work, uh, you're not successful or that. Uh, like, you're wor worthless. Like yeah, you're in the right. gutter. Yeah. Right. And I obviously never really had that perspective. And and as I also just yeah, I I know a lot of people. Like for example, I remember Hal Hartley, who's a filmmaker who I totally admire and think that he's amazing. And I remember that he was a teaching at Harvard, um, teaching film at Harvard. Uh, and I was like, look, if Hal Hartley has to like be a teacher, you know, right, I mean, to yeah. pay his bills. But, but then we, does, I guess I must have come across this article about from Francis Ford Coppola that was about how he had uh, the vineyards uh, in order to support like his filmmaking. And then it was like, okay, if Francis yeah, Ford Coppola, it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and he, he's been at the tippity-top of the industry. He's won five Oscars. He's had box office smashes, like The Godfather, Apocalypse Now. He's, like, been in a spot to know and be demythologized and demystified from all the hype. And he's now at a point now where he just, he has his vineyard, and he makes, I, I think, Coppola Winery makes, like, a couple hundred million a year. And he every so often will take off a chunk, something he can afford to lose, like, two million or ten million or whatever it is for him. And he'll just make a film. And he, I think his last one, Twixt, with... Uh, Val Kilmer was, like, scarcely even distributed. It was, like, something he just wanted to, like, have on a shelf somewhere. Like, he's totally over it. And that was very help healthy for me because uh, playing the game with distributors, I mean, in a lot of cases, it's like criminal behavior. They rip you off. They sell your movie to international territories. You never see a dime. And it's just such an uphill thing, the making a living piece of it. But I still have the passion for cinema itself and to do it. So it is a help to look at somebody like Coppola and Mike Shyamalan, too, uh, his last three movies he paid for by himself, just from, like, real estate money. <laughs> and he got uh, mainstream distribution for Universal, but it's him. It's just like, all right, I'm going to make it just the way I want it. My own mm -hmm. screenplay, my own vision. Because he had failed with After Earth. It was, like, $120 million, and it's just like he lost 
tens of millions of dollars. And I can't imagine what that experience is like. But at a certain point, um, that purity is appealing. That's what I've always admired so much about how you've approached it from the beginning. You were so ahead of that curve in terms of uh, just a, a, real, a real simple relationship to it in the sense of, wait, hold on. These are the things I want to say. This is going to uh, light, light my grid and make me passionate. And this is just the way it has to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Of course, the the very tricky thing about filmmaking is that you do need money to make it. It's not you like oh, I'm going to yeah. make this painting, and yeah. you know, I just need some paint. You know, you, you need the labor of several people um, and equipment and whatnot. So, so that's the tricky part is that is that you still need resources and how to get those. Well, you know, it's the forever it's the forever filmmaker struggle. Yeah. yeah, it's a hustle. Yeah, and you're always pulling from all directions. I know, like, for a lot of your projects, you've crowdfunded, right? Uh, actually, oh. only one of them. Oh, um, only one. Okay, I lost track. Only okay. the last one. No, yeah. Okay. Um, we, no, okay, that, that may be not. No, that's not true. I did, we did crowdfund a little bit for Dyke Central. It just wasn't okay. particularly successful. I mean, I despise that process i mean now yeah it's, it's like, a tough that's a tough thing to do i mean ugh, especially you know 10 years ago i was definitely just really resistant and people were like you have to do it uh and i i did we did need to get funds from somewhere but it wasn't particularly successful or like we got maybe just mm, like a couple yeah. thousand dollars here and there the last oh, movie that I made was like, okay, I'm going to take this crowdfunding thing as a very serious thing. That's like my job for a month. And, um, it was still very unpleasant, you know, but, um, yeah, I think that one was more like 15,000 or something. Like oh, that. okay. Okay. Um, did, did, did that campaign get to the end? Did you get the, 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 the amount you wanted? Yeah, I didn't get the full amount, but I think it, once you cross the 80% line, you got the funds, and we basically did that. And, okay. uh, yeah, that was for the short solstice that I made. That's a, like, longer short end. Oh, which was beautiful, yeah. Yeah, and you um, – so for the, the one you're working on now, I'm not sure how much or, or if you want to get into it, but you said it's more – it would require more establishment support. So, in other words, it would probably be, like, in the millions of dollars to produce it. Uh, well, it's a series. Um, I, so I, I feel like, I think it's also just the vision I have for it. I want people to see it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that it needs to, yeah, it needs to have full funding. I don't know if millions, I mean, for me, I, because I'm a scrappy indie filmmaker, I'm like, oof, even just with, you know, Two hundred thousand dollars. I mean, yeah, yeah. absolutely make it uh, great. But you know, the, then there's the whole thing of uh, having uh, people true. with, um, you know, with with a bigger name or, or just that's it's a whole different world than what I operate in. But I do think that I have to dip my toes uh, in that for this particular pro project because um, it's just I think it's important, you know. It's important to me, and I want people to see it. Got it. Okay. I mean, Al, it was interesting because you and I were talking about film financing in the past couple of weeks, and you were just like flat out. You're like, you get nothing out of it. Nothing comes back. It's like, uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because as, as recently as like 12 years ago, there was still enough mystique where like a lay investor would think like, ooh, I'll invest in a movie. It's sexy. But I think the word, because of the internet, the word is so out that it's so hard to get it back out. And you, you put money into something, right? Yeah, I've got the uh, Gacy film from John Burrell no, right. coming out. I'm the exact producer. But, you know, oh, that's the, awesome. the, the, the thing is, um, I know I'll never make it back. Um, that's why I said, you know, I only do so much per year because I look at my mm. income and then I put out. But I, it's sort of, I kind of I'm kind of doing both for myself in the sense that I write some really... Um, commercial books, uh, all the short read series in, in crime and murders, and they sell like crazy, and they sell every single day, and they bring me income. And then I write serious things that I really put myself into that mean something to me, which don't pay me that well, you know, mm. off and on. And and the thing is, when I see someone like John, John Borowski, made some great web shows and series and 
and some films. And so I thought this new one that he was doing, it's been a couple of years now he's been working on it. And I thought, this is a great piece of work. So I'll put money into it because I believe in what he's doing and the product at the end. And that's all that matters. So it's kind of one of those, I, I put it in two groups. And either it's I'm into it and it's about it's a good project that I believe in or it's it's um, money. Uh, right, right. And that's a very healthy sort of pure way to look at it. Well, what's good about um, what Florencia was describing with her series is if the money comes from a more establishment source now, it would be a streamer like Netflix or Hulu or Amazon. And what's good about the way they're monetized is each individual piece of work doesn't have any pressure on it to profit. It's all about the uh, subscriber mm -hmm. base. So that that has made it brought like a sort of quasi socialism to filmmaking because it's like if you make the Irishman for two hundred million, you don't have to account for it later. It doesn't have to come back to you. It just has to be, you know, to help, you know, all ships rise with that tide on that platform and help Netflix keep its shine and that's it. And for Amazon it's like they want to keep people on that website to shop. And that's it. Like they you know, so if you if you have people looking at the Amazon logo over and over and watching shows, it serves them in umpteenth other ways across all the products they so it's sort of an elevated um, – the reason I, I pointed out that you had that mindset, Al, in terms of, like, it being more for the product or with Florencia not being money-motivated, I think it's – I hope. I might be naive, but I think it could kind of be trending in that direction because I know filmmakers historically have despised the box office, especially as, as it's become, like, the Monday morning news. is like, all right, what happened at the box office? Of course not now because of COVID, but um, – so well, it's healthy. But there has to be a point when you when you when you take on a project, you have to kind of know uh, if it's in your heart and you're into it, and this is a good project. Uh, yeah. Then it's not about the money. The money's not. It's about getting the money to do it. Like it, it becomes secondary. Right. But when you're when you're but you've got to make money too. If you have a talent to be able to like, like to make movies, um, then then it's okay to make commercial movies. It's okay to make just like I do commercial books, it doesn't make my good work bad. And I know a lot of people think, oh, you're sellout, and they'll just write you off because of it. But I, I don't believe in that because we've got to live too, right? Yeah, I think and it's interesting because to my mind, the whole concept of a sellout, like which is a punk term, like coming up in the 80s and 90s, it's like, oh, you're sellout, you're selling out to the man or whatever. It's yeah. like every, the economy has changed so drastically. It's so splintered. Like half the people I know have like seven different jobs. Like, you've got to, like, you have to, like, anybody who thinks, like, you don't have to work that sort of hustle to survive is, like, not paying attention. So, like, of course, you know, like, like I'm, I'm over here doing journalism, fiction, filmmaking. I mean, it's, it's always been diversified. Yeah. Right, exactly. I mean, I think it's, like, whether you are doing that money-making hustle in the same realm as your creative work or outside of it, you have to do it somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I could yeah. choose to work a job. I could work at the drive-through and make money. Uh, you know, I could yeah. work at a department store, and it's about money. Uh, but if I'm able to write for a project for a publisher that's going to pay me, I'd rather do that than work at right. McDonald's. You know? I'd oh, absolutely. It, and you know, also, you know, there's so many logistical things. Like you're at home, you're on a flexible schedule, you're using your God-given talent, all those things. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, and I'm I'm from the 80s sellout era too, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, hey, it's all good. Uh, but I was going to ask, um, so Florencia, if, if, when, you do a, when you do one of your projects, a film mm -hmm. or a series and stuff like that, um, what is the take home? Like what is it that you want people to do? to take away from your project it, it, like for instance let's take dyke central because it's something we all mm -hmm. know so at the end of dyke central besides the the top story you know the main theme and all mm -hmm. that stuff what do you want me to have, to feel or take away from oh i don't think i have a fixed uh a singular thing i think it different people will take different things from it depending on who they are especially something like dyke central um because it's you know, there's so many things going on that my mom, <laughs> who knows nothing about the queer community, would take something very different than people who, like, write me. To this day, I get messages about people who have just watched like, Central, and they're like, oh, my God, I felt this way. I felt so identified because they are very much relating to the characters. Um, and 
that's even unpredictable. You know, I, I, I don't think I can be thinking about that personally. I, although when you ask me the question, I am thinking uh, there's a short that I might shoot next month that I'm very excited about. Um, we'll see the COVID restrictions uh, allow or, um, but it, that one is kind of a conversation between two people of different generations who have, you know, Gen X and Gen, and the millennials, uh, not the millennials, sorry, Gen Z, which is like my kid's age. Um, and hmm. I think with, the, with that one, I do maybe have something that I am getting that, you know, I, in between those two generations, I'm getting out of it. But at the same time, I don't think I could even predict what, like, people from Gen Z would get out of it by watching it or Gen X. Um, I think I think it's very much the kind of thing where, like, I have to just make it from a, from a place that is authentic to me. And then, you know, you free it into the world and then it lands wherever it lands for people. Yeah. And... <clears throat> Honestly, that's one of the things that I love about screening films in person, like having Q&As, because I've also had experiences where just people come up to me after and, and then they share what it, where it landed for them. And I absolutely, there's no way that I could have ever like controlled or predicted or planned uh, just what, where, what things touched people in particular. Um, and it's such a, that's the, the beauty of it is is the the unknowable mm-hmm. element there yeah are you when you get those emails and people say i felt seen i felt represented is that gratifying does that give you joy oh absolutely i mean yeah 100 percent. that those the amount of messages i've gotten about dyke central um like make it feel very worth it you know even those grueling to to make and everything but those are the reminders or even in moments where i'm like why am i even filmmaking what is what is the point you know those like those those dark nights yeah. of the soul there where you're <laughs> like what am i even doing and uh, those messages are very validating in those moments it's like oh yeah it it matters you know you're not this is not me in a shoebox making something for myself in a very self-gratifying way uh this uh, is wh- how it works mm-hmm. okay. uh, while we have you here because i know we're running out of time i wanted oh, to yeah. ask you because we've discussed this before and i thought this was a pretty punk move on your part the word dyke um wasn't uh-huh. that sort of an impolitic choice at the time you made it like wasn't that weren't you sort of like on the borderline where that was like seeping into a more appropriate lexicon or can you walk us through that yeah, it's interesting. The word Dyke being in Dyke Central is the reason why Dyke Central like couldn't be in more like mainstream. Yeah. Um, a lot of people were like, oh, we, we can't take that. We can't take yeah. that if you're attached to it. But here, I mean, and it goes back to the previous conversation about, you know, representation of life in the Bay Area. Here, the word Dyke was reclaimed, like, Dyke March is an annual thing that happens. It's like the word dyke is very beautiful and embraced and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. And, and it's not like that in the rest of the world, but it was important to have that word because we are not, this is not Hollywood and this is, was not something that was made to like uh, be palatable to the mainstream. This was something that was made to be, an authentic representation of like this community here and the, this community here uses that word. Like I did get to explore that in episode two um, where they, they just had that little conversation. I was like, we, they need to actually talk about the word because, um, because it, you know, just to clarify my position. So they do that in episode two um, in a big way. And uh, yeah, I felt like that was, Hmm. Um, did you ever get any like outright disapproval or like finger pointing or any or finger wagging or anything like that outside of certain um, entities or venues not wanting to carry it? Um, some of the comments. If you look, if you go to YouTube, there's the first and second episodes are on YouTube and they okay. they have long comments. I think I don't really am not a YouTube comment reader, but <laughs> cast members are, and they'll, like, share stuff with me, and sometimes I've gone in there and read them. Um, 
definitely here and there people are like i'm still not comfortable with this word you know yeah. it meant this especially older people they're like yeah. this word was very like violently used against me um mm. and that's fine it doesn't i don't need to take away from their experience you know that there's yeah that's a whole other conversation yeah. but oh well, um, yeah. yeah and there's, there's the, you know people put too much power into the words Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think you just know where someone's coming from when they're saying something. So when they're saying it with hateful intent, it doesn't matter really what the word is. Mm-hmm. That's how I look at it. But that's just what I've learned over fifty some years in, in my life. It seems like um, it's really about the intention of someone when they're talking to me um, that I take more than the, the those 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 stupid words. They just you know they're they're not that important, but. But what am yeah, I? Agreed. You know, yeah. Well, I, I want to ask though. I want to ask though, Flancy, with your intention. I'm just curious to like go into the deeper center because obviously your intention on that end of things with that title was sound and it was good and great. I mean, it's, you're representing in a very positive way, and that's without question. But I'm wondering if you were also, since you were cognizant of the fact that it was a bold choice, if there was any side of you that felt like you were sort of standing up in that way, like with boldness, or was that not really a motivator? Uh, I would say yes, and in the same way of having, like, masculine of center people, uh, like, women who are masculine um, as the protagonist, that was also kind of a thing, you know, that I did get pushed back. They were like, oh, people need to be pretty. First off, to me, the mm. people in the show are very attractive, so it's like, mm-hmm. okay, I understand that from for that, for a different view, you uh yeah you have a different lens and yes it is very important for me to 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 keep this as i am doing it because there is a lack of of this you know um yeah yeah Uh, well said well Um, we are running out of time here we're getting on the edge so florencia let's give out your contact so do you have a, a website or a place that you want people to go and find out about you and your work Oh yeah, um, I my uh, my website is Mina Films, so it's M Y N A H Films plural dot com, and then Instagram Mina Films, same thing M Y N A H Films, and Facebook, same thing. Okay. Yeah, we will link that up with ours so people listening to the show can find you with one click and and uh, give you the feedback about Dyke. <laughs> Sounds good, yeah. I'm here for it. Well, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end. By George, he's got it. It is the end. I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.